couple of announcements. Remember the internet safety presentation tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Also the marriage uh, petition for signing that. Need to be a registered voter, but those tables will be open after the service to avail yourself of that and, and uh, sign those as, as uh, you would desire to do that. Numbers chapter 11 this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we come to some very, very key chapters uh, in the Old Testament this evening. Beginning in verse 1, there's a single word that begins, as is the case with all verses, correct? Um, uh, every verse in the Bible. But the, the word now is, uh, uh, sets a little, gives us a little feel for what's happening here. The children of Israel have begun now their uh, journey in earnest from Mount Sinai area now toward the promised land. And we saw in verse 33 of chapter 10 that they're about three days now into their journey. So this is when all of these events start to happen. Didn't take them long uh, to uh, head into this, uh, this particular activity that's going to be condemned by God in really unmistakable terms. So we're told now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord... Uh, for he heard it, and his anger was aroused, and this is the degree to which he was displeased with complaining among his people. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. So we're told that the people began to complain. We're not told what they began to complain about or who are these people. Well, uh, they're Jews. For sure, God's people. We're going to see in just a few verses that uh, the Jews are going to fall prey to a mixed multitude who uh, kind of initiate another planning, uh, complaining campaign against the Lord. So the fact that he doesn't ascribe this particular complaining episode to them indicates that uh, it was uh, Jews. And uh, so they begin to complain about three days into their uh, their journey here now, and, and God is obviously very, very displeased with it. Now, what is complaining? Complaining is to express uh, verbally discontent, and that's what they're doing. They're expressing discontent openly and uh, verbally. Interesting in the passage, and this is a, a very important passage to me because I don't know if it was right in here where we, uh, Karen and I, started going to. Calvary Chapel of Napa, somewhere, um, whether it was on tape or something, I remember the first time I heard teaching on this passage, and it just etched into my uh, heart and into my mind how serious, uh, how seriously God views complaining uh, by His people. And we're told there in verse 1 that they complain, it displeased the Lord. And then that very next phrase, it says, For the Lord heard it. The Lord hears all complaining on the part of, of His people. And I think it's very important for us to know that as Christians. He hears everything that comes out of our mouth. And He gives us very, great clarity here about the impact that complaining coming from our lives has upon Him. We're told here that it displeased him, and it does more than displease him. It really arouses in God uh, a great and righteous anger. And I think that that's very important for us to understand as Christians too. Now, um, there are, some of us, we're all different, aren't we really, as Christians? And 
and as descendants of Adam and Eve, which means we have a, an old nature that we contend with on a daily basis as Christians. And some people are more given to complaining than other people. But wherever we are kind of in that, as God's children, we need to know how he sees this. Let me also say, as we go through the, this passage here this evening, I am not addressing any local situation. And uh, uh, I'm not above that, but I, I really try not to do that from the pulpit. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that um, for 20-some years, however long we've been here, 23 years, this church has never been a complaining church. I don't know what happens in private, but, but as a church, I'm not trying to get back at anybody or anything like that. I just need these things to wash on my life. I need them to make me uh, see things, how God sees them, things that I might otherwise just brush off as being minor or having really no detrimental effect upon God's reputation or my own uh, witness for Him. And so uh, th that's, that's the way that we, we come to it. Now, how God uh, views this complaining in, in, in what it... Uh, is what his concern is what it communicates about him because any complaining by a Christian by a child of God is a reflection upon our God it indicates that we're questioning his wisdom in our lives we're questioning his power in our lives we're qu questioning his love in terms of how he's operating in our lives. And because complaining is verbal, it really reflects badly upon him to others that overhear are complaining as Christians. And it causes people, people really notice complaining people. There's hardly anything harder to bear in life than to be around a chronically complaining Person. I mean, it just wears you out. It just grinds you to dust. And the problem is, is that when a Christian is complaining, non-Christians then look at them and they think, well, if their God can't keep them satisfied, if their God is such a failure in their eyes, then why in the world would I want to seek after or give my life to the God that they're continually telling me that I need to give my life to? And it puts people off. It really does a lot of damage. And God has to do a lot of damage control related to uh, what's done by complaining uh, through, his, uh, through his people. So we have to remember as Christians, our words aren't just a reflection upon us. Once people know that we're Christians, they are now judging our God by virtue of what comes, uh, comes out of our, our mouths. Now this complaining is really, really shocking uh, in, in the light of all that God had done for them. I mean, one miracle after another, after another, ten, I mean, gigantic, supersized, uh, plague miracles to get them out of Egypt. He's parted the Red Sea for them. He's given them manna. I mean, he's found, you know, water for them, and he's made bitter water, you know, pure. And I mean, one miracle after another, after another, supplying them with all of their, their daily needs and, and all, and, 
still they come in, they, they complain against them. And it, does, it really does uh, terrible damage. I think sometimes only the Lord knows how much damage is done. So he brings uh, this up here. Now, in this particular case, he judges his people. Uh, they're complaining with fire. So they're complaining and uh, he just brings fire down from heaven. Sometimes people say, well, it was lightning. Could have been lightning. That works. Uh, real fire works too. So somehow he takes in just a supernatural judgment of his. He comes down in the middle of that group of complainers there. And, uh, and he consumes them with fire. Now this, this is such an appropriate judgment for the verbal sin of complaining because complaining is a fire the Bible talks about the words of our mouth being a fire James said uh, in James chapter 3 see how great a forest a little fire kindles and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity the tongue is set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it's set on uh, on fire by hell itself and so uh, the, our words can be a fire, inappropriate words from our lives. And complaining is, is exactly that. So this complaining, this start complaining, we're seeing a moment how contagious complaining is, even among God's people. And so what these people are doing by complaining against God is they're just setting a fire over here, a little fire over here, a little fire over here, a little fire over here, and they are endangering God's work and the world through them as, as God's people. So he knows how to fight fire with fire, so to speak. And he comes in and he says, I know how to remove this kind of a, a danger to my work and to my people here. And so he judges it with fire. Now, it's again very, very clear, it seems to me, that the people that he judges here, they are Jews. They're traveling with Moses and all. They're not the mixed multitude. God would have identified them as a mixed multitude, as again, as we said, he does in, in verse 4. And, and since they're not identified as that, they really have to be uh, Jews. But the interesting thing here uh, about this, we say, well, we don't know anything about them, but we do know something about them. We know that they are Jews who uh, hang out on the fringe of the camp, the edge of the camp. They're as far away from the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the Levites, the priests, Moses, as they can possibly be and still be identified with God's people. And, and that's where so often within a church or uh, a Christian organization, you see a complaining campaign that begins, so often it begins with that uh, kind of group that's on the fringe. They're really not don't have a great hunger or a passion for God or anything like that and, and uh, uh, but they want to go to heaven absolutely want to go to heaven they want to be identified among God's people but they don't have a great concern to go deep into the things of the Lord and so they begin in their lack of spirituality they begin to complain uh, against uh, what it is that God is, is doing. And they don't recognize that it's a weakness in, in their life. And so we're told a little bit about them. It's a kind of person that dwells on the outskirts of what it is uh, that the Lord is, 
uh, is, is doing. Now, uh, complaining is going to be something that the children of Israel do over and over and over again through these uh, chapters. And, and uh, I think, as we're not told in this passage exactly what it was that they were complaining about, again, we're going to be told in just a moment, we will get there tonight, uh, what they were complaining about specifically there in verse 4 with a mixed multitude, but here we're not told specifically what they complained about. And I think the reason for that is that the Lord is just communicating. It wouldn't matter what they were complaining about. It would have displeased him. It would have been a threat to his work and he would have had to, to judge it. Otherwise we would look and say, well, it's only bad if you complain about this thing that they were complaining about. God's just making a very, very strong statement uh, against complaining. They're complaining. There is no good reason for complaining among God's people. And so this is the, the point that he makes. It is a serious thing for a child of God uh, to, to complain. It makes our lives very, very unattractive. And it does great damage to our witness, but also great damage to the Lord's uh, reputation. And again, I love the strength of the exhortation here. So he judges a group of people, and then the people, so here we've got some repentance going on, they cried out. Little fire will do that. Little dab will do you. So the people cried out to Moses. And, uh, you know, when Moses got a little repentance, then Moses heads into prayer, intercession for them. He prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. And so they called the name of the place Taborah, which means to burn, uh, because of the fire that the Lord had kindled uh, among them. Now, the, the important, the good thing that it would have been for the children of Israel to learn at this point is, okay, what's the take-home lesson here? The take-home lesson is, don't complain and don't stand too close to a complainer. Because you could get fried uh, on this. So that's the, that's the take-home lesson, and they're not going to learn it. They're going to have to retake the course. And, and sometimes we look, and we, for those of us who know a little bit about the Old Testament, we get all the way to their failure at Kadesh Barnea to enter in by faith into the Promised Land. As a result of that, they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and we think, oh, this is just one isolated incident of, of a failure to obey God and His promises. It isn't that. Their failure at Kadesh Barnea starts here. They do not learn the lesson, that, that lessons that God is trying to teach them to make them go deep in Him, be a mature people, to realize they're not like everybody else in the world, that He is going to bring the Word of God to the whole world through them, and He's going to bring the Savior of the world into the world through them, and they just can't be like everybody else. And they're going to blow through this stop sign, and they're going to blow through it again, and blow through it again, and blow through it again, until by the time they get to Kadesh Barnea, they just think they can say anything or do anything they want in front of God, and, and it doesn't matter. It's important. When God takes and, and He singes us a little bit on some kind of an issue, and you look and say, okay, you got my attention here. I think what this is about is this. If it's about something else, please tell me, because I do not want to repeat this course. And, and to learn, on a sm as small a scale as possible, what the Lord is trying to teach me. But they don't do it. They don't do it. In verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them, that is the Jews, they yielded to intense craving. 
And we'll see what that craving is in just a verse or so. And so the children of Israel also wept again, and they were drawn into this complaining of the mixed multitude, and they said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, What is so appealing about that? Onions and garlic. Then you get a little older. Boy, onions and garlic are pretty good on just about anything. So here, here is this, this whole complaining thing that, that starts all over again. This one is initiated uh, by the mixed multitude, we're told. Now, who's this mixed multitude? We're told all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, that a mixed multitude accompanied them. They were not Jews. They were probably slaves in Egypt, just like the Jews. But they, did, they didn't want to be in Egypt anymore. They didn't want to be a slave in Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world for us as Christians. The old life of bondage in the world. They didn't want to live in Egypt anymore. And here's a group of slaves that are getting out of here. So they kind of hitch their wagon to these Jews that are leaving. But they don't have an interest in following the God of the Jews. So they're kind of, this is the mixed multitude. They don't want to be in Egypt, but they don't, they don't want to really be about what the Jews are about and what God is trying to do in the Jews. So they're this, this mixed, uh, mixed multitude uh, uh, here. And so this is their condition. And, uh, okay, these people are leaving Egypt. This looks exciting. Let's go and see what in the world uh, happens. We'll go be a part of this. A lot of people like that, even in... In churches, they want to be out of Egypt. They want to be out of the world, and uh, they even like spiritual environments. But they really don't want to get serious about the things of the Lord. They're not interested in His call on their lives or the call of the church to make a difference in a community and in the world. They really don't have a hunger for the Word of God or the things of the Holy Spirit or what a church is supposed to be and and uh, God's plan for using a church and and all. And just as soon as things don't uh, don't go the way that they want them to go, they start, they start uh, complaining about everything. And, and the problem is, they then infect everyone else around them with our carnality. They're the kind of you know, so-called Christian who has one foot in the world and uh, one foot in the things of the Lord. They still have a, a love for much of what is back in Egypt, but they don't want to go back to that bondage completely. So they want a little something in in between. And they want a church that will kind of allow them to do that. Get a little, you know, angel dust sprinkled on them once a week and all. But then during the rest of the week they can uh, eat up all the things that the world is is offering too. So they want, they know they can't make the world more like the church. Because the world won't tolerate it. You've got to give the devil credit. You've got to give the world credit. They won't compromise. So, so if we can't make the world a little bit more like the church, then they start to put pressure on the church to become more like the world so that they can be comfortable uh, there. And so they, they want to have it both ways. But the real problem with all of that is that the Lord also attends a church. And he's not interested in the church being like Egypt. 
or being like the world. So they, these people, they don't care about God. They don't care about His purposes. They don't care about the advancement of the kingdom of God. They don't, they, they, but they're physically in church. But everything they really love in life is out in the world. Now that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Now, we don't deal with um, any kind of significant group of, of that kind of person in this church. Never have. Never have. There, there has never... Now, could happen next week, okay? <laughs> A little Catholic background. But it's, it's never been that way. And, and one of the reasons, I, I think, and I think for some of you young folks that are going to go out and start ministries that are Calvary Chapel and, and that kind of thing, or be in those kind of ministries, I think one of the reasons that it hasn't happened is we have a settled vision of what the church is supposed to be. And it's a biblical vision. It comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Here you've got... Uh, 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost and now what are we going to do to bring them to maturity? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine which is the word of God, prayer, fellowship, coming together for spiritual interaction to kind of sharpen one another to greatness in the kingdom of God and then also the Lord's Supper. Then three other things in that chapter. There was evangelism. Peter preached the, the gospel. They were water baptized in the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost. And those seven things are the things that, number one, make converts and then make disciples out of converts. So one of the beautiful things for us from day one, and I'm so thankful to Pastor Chuck Smith and how God has used him and all. The first time I heard Chuck and walked into a Calvary Chapel in Napa, I just had a kindred spirit with a biblical vision for the local church. Calvary Chapel, the name means a lot to me. I like the kindred spirit of, of the fellowship and all, but it's the fact that the vision comes from the Bible that means pretty much everything to me. So we're not a church where we're kind of got something going and now we're trying to figure out what it is. We know what it's supposed to be. And so that's why we look at people want to do this thing or this thing or this thing or this thing and we run it through a grid and say, where does it fit in those seven things? And the mixed multitude doesn't want to do those seven things. They don't want to do it. I think another thing that has helped protect us through the years is the emphasis on the Word of God. The mixed multitude is, they're just, they're not going to sit and endure, in their mind, endure the Word of God and an emphasis on the Word of God. Now, there's, you've got a different thing happening here when God is dealing with uh, Moses and this congregation of three million. Never have a congregation of three million. But the thing that Moses was dealing with here, and God is dealing with it too, is there isn't another church in the wilderness for these folks to break off to. And a lot of times what happens is, is that this mixed multitude, if they can't convert something, into what they want it to be, they'll simply break off someplace else where they might have success. Now that I have dealt with through the years. And it's the clarity of biblical vision for the local church that has allowed us to say, you know, this is what we are, and I think you're looking for someplace else. Not in a harsh way or condemning way or anything like that. This is what we are from the Word of God, and now you decide whether you have a, a, a drawing of the Spirit to be a part of that. And so that it has 
uh, protected us uh, through the years. Now notice in, in verses uh, 4 and 5 here that they yielded to intense craving. They craved Egypt. They craved the old life. They craved the spicy food you know, of, of Egypt. All oh, the fish. Oh my. Cucumbers. St. Peter's fish there with a little garlic and onions. Mm, just because he's whom. And so, all, but when they think about Egypt, all they can think about is the food. And, and it's so funny, once God gets us out of Egypt, how very, very quickly we can start to develop a very selective memory about Egypt. Egypt was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. They were being worked to death by Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And they're completely rewriting history in their minds. And it's, I think it's funny, I think every Christian will hit it very, very early upon becoming a brand new Christian, if not in the early weeks, then in the very early months of being a Christian, where the devil will come and will attack a Christian and will force them to... He'll come and he'll try and entice them related to Egypt. Look at this, you're walking with God and sooner or later as soon as we give our lives to the Lord there'll be trials there'll be difficulties he shows up when things start to get difficult things are getting difficult for them and they'll try and try and make it sound like Egypt the our old life life in the world was just the greatest uh, kind of thing in an attempt to lure us back and at that moment in time I think it makes or breaks about 80 percent of Christians in that they have to decide at that moment that it is more important to me to be in the will of God and to serve Him and to be used for His purposes than it is for me to go back into the world longing for some little thing that I've left behind there. And it's an important crisis that hits in the life of a Christian because when a person makes that decision and says, yeah, I can go back there and I can have leeks and I can have garlic and I can have fish and I can have all of these other things that my flesh enjoyed, but I will be eating them as a slave. I will be in bondage again. And it's much better to have a cup of tea and a, and a slice of dry toast and be free than to have all that other stuff and to be in bondage to the world. And when a person looks and says, wait a second, here we are. I'm right here. I've got to choose. This is pulling me real hard. But if I go back, then my life is not going to be spent for things that are eternal, things that are meaningful. Nope, I'm going with God. Now that person has set a course that they'll probably stay on the rest of their Christian life. So this is the kind of kind of thing that that happens and so and, and it's not an old testament thing it happens in the new testament uh too the bible talks in the new testament about those whose god is their belly a belly is a terrible god to have uh, isn't it but what it means is those who elevate the lusts of their flesh above the will and the purposes of god in the world and paul wrote about it to the church at philippi about those uh, whose end is destruction, he said, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind, and this is to have your God as your belly, here it is, who set their mind on earthly things. But then he goes on and says, we're not like that. 
our citizenship is in heaven. We have said no to that to be able to say uh, yes to this. And so that's what the, the, the you know, mixed multitude is, dominated by their fleshly appetites without any concern at all for what God is doing in the world. Now it is interesting there in verse 4 that the children of Israel, they come under the influence of these complainers and uh, they begin to complain also. Have you ever noticed how contagious complaining is? Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mention it, and then here, 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 you know, and then somebody's over by a water cooler over here, and they come out of their cubicle, and then this person comes, you know, come to think about it, I thought about that, but you're right, you know. And then pretty soon, you know, you've got a full-blown rebellion going on. It just, it just, it begins with a few, and then pretty soon everybody's spouting the same thing, and this situation that is happening here is a very, very dangerous situation that is occurring. And it teaches us, here you've got the Jews, they, their heads are screwed on straight, mostly screwed on straight in, in this situation, but they get drawn into it. And it doesn't matter how spiritual we are, how long we've walked with God, how many miracles we have with God in our past, we can get drawn into this kind of thing. And they get drawn into this, this whole thing. And it's a real temptation to start to fall into this, and now I'm complaining like like everybody else. Now the cause of the complaining is uh, God's provision for them. Food. They want leeks and, and garlics and onions and fish and all these, these kinds of things. They, and so that's what they wanted in their life. And not only did they want that, but what they, uh, that, that's what they longed for, but they despised what God was providing for them. Notice in verse 6. But now our whole being is dried up. In other words, is it going to talk about manna? This just dries us up inside to even think about manna or eat another bite of manna. Our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So God's been feeding them every single day with manna. Do you know how, if they had had to feed themselves, do you know how many, one of the brothers was telling me after the service, he had they had figured out, you know, the little omer that each one of them got each day and twice as much on Friday so they could have it through the Sabbath and how many, you know, uh, truck trailers worth it would be. And uh, somebody I had heard one time talking about if they were carrying, if they had to carry their food in covered wagons, that the covered wagons would stretch for over a hundred miles. That would be the supply line that would, uh, of how much food it would take to feed them. And I think on a, on a daily basis, about three million people here. And God looks and says, I know you can't cultivate anything out in that wilderness and all, and so I'm going to give you manna. And it's only going to be till you get to the promised land. Now, God never intended that it would take them 40 years to get the promised land. It's an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. They're going to eat manna. They've been eating it for about a year. Just in 11 more days and things will be good and you'll, you'll be able to eat all of the land flowing with milk and honey there in the Promised Land. And, uh, but God was being very good to supply 
all of this uh, to them. And the Lord, you know, so we don't look at this and say, well, boy, they really got a, a beef here. You know, that manna must have really been terrible. God describes the manna to us. It was wonderful. The manna was like a coriander seed. And so, uh, uh, and, and then it, its color was like the color of, uh, I guess it's delium, which is kind of a light yellow or white. So it's very attractive. Nothing, it wasn't like, murky brown or you know some kind of a thing like that with uh, you know spots of green in it or something so it was very attractive to look at and the people went out and they gathered it and uh, they ground it on millstones or they beat it on the mortar and cooked it in pans and made cakes of it and so uh, what God is saying here is that there were a lot of ways that they could they could prepare this so it's a very, very flexible meal. Sometimes I hear people and they talk about this manna, you know. They ate it, they cooked it, they beat it, they baked it, they fried it. You know, they made uh, banana splits out of it and manicotti and, you know, the, the, old, the old jokes on the thing and all. It is, but what, that's not what God is saying here. God is saying this was a very, very versatile food that they could cook a lot of different ways. God was looking out for them. It wasn't, so, it wasn't like they were eating lima beans and squash and Brussels sprouts and other very ungodly um, uh, vegetables. If you like those, you can have mine at any church potluck. But they will never be served at any church potluck. So... We're not in any danger. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. So a little sweetness, but that oil to carry, a little protein kind of a deal. I mean, God's looked out for, for everything. It was tasty. It wasn't like they were eating something terrible. And when the dew fell on the camp in the, in the night, the manna fell on it. And God just provided it every single day to them except on, on the Sabbath days. And so what's the translation of this? Their complaints are completely unjustified. They are complaining because they're complainers. They're complaining because they want to complain. They have no legitimate reason to complain against God on, on this issue. The fact of the matter is they've never eaten so well on things. And then Moses, he hears the people not only complaining, but I mean, you've got to picture this in your mind. He heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. Here you've got six, probably 600,000 tents. And every, it isn't everybody's gone into their tent and said, let's show some restraint, and they've got their Kleenex up against their nose, and they're just kind of doing one of these quiet little things. This go, they go right to the doorway of their tents. They bring the whole family there to join them. And uh, you want to ruin your kids, just have them complain against God. You know, bring them and make it a family activity. And then absolutely be shocked. And at, at 18, when they leave the house, they don't want anything to do with God. But they, they take 600,000 tents. They gather right there in the doorway of the tent. And they are weeping. I mean, here's God's people. They are crying and weeping over the... We want fish. We want onions. We want garlic, you know. And, and uh, weeping for the food of, of, of Egypt. Now, this is more than just them weeping. Uh, the fact that they're doing this in, in their doorway, this is a full-blown rebellion that's going on. 
They, they are, this is a public demonstration against Moses having ever taken them out of Egypt and robbed them of this life that they now dream about. That's what's happening here. And they don't care who hears it. They don't care if God hears it. They don't care if Moses hears it. They don't care if anybody hears it. This is a very dangerous situation. Remember, God's going to bring the Savior of the world into the world through these people. And for some leeks and garlics, they're going to throw off that kind of heritage. Anything the devil comes and offers you, I don't care if it's a million dollars, I don't care if it's a billion dollars, to move you away from God's eternal plan for your life, it is still leeks and garlic. And they're, be, they're being thrown off just because they remember the hometown buffet in, in Cairo, land of Goshen. Have you ever seen people eat? And I'm not going to go back. I'm just teasing. I've been there a couple of times and people were on their very best behavior. I wasn't, but they, they were. So, so this is very serious what's, what's happening here. Now, notice the reaction of the Lord, number, number one, and then the reaction of Moses. When, when they both hear this and see this, the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. I don't want his anger to ever be just simply aroused against me, let alone to be greatly aroused. He, this really upsets him because it's completely unjustified against him. And, but that's the power of complaining. Man, it just works. Could pull deeply spiritual people into the whole campaign and all. And he is greatly, uh, his anger greatly aroused. And Moses was also uh, displeased. So neither of them liked what it was that was going on here. Now Moses, he's going to step up first in, in, in responding to this. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? He's, he's going to try and hand in his resignation now. So it, it, this, he prays now to the Lord concerning this whole thing. This is like, I, 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 it's all I can take, I can't take no more. He said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I, and there's going to be a lot of I, me, and my throughout this thing. And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? He just looks and says, Lord, these people are too much for me. I can't. I, every time I turn around, they're doing something like this. He said, did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a garden? Guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their uh, fathers. And so he says, Lord, they're not my children. They're your children. Remember I was just minding my own business out there in the wilderness and I was just had my father-in-law's sheep and I just wandered around. I don't want to do, I just, all I wanted to do was just live out my three score and ten and die. You did that whole burning bush thing and you got me here. These are your people and I, I, can't, I can't keep them in line uh, anymore. And where am I to get meat to give to all these people. Now he thinks he's got to come up with the meat. So he's, he's really uh, confronted with the impossibility of, of their, their demands. And you, you want to wipe leaders out. 
uh, just ask the impossible of them in uh, mass. And so he says, they, these people are impossible to satisfy. Where am I going to get meat to give all these people? For they weep, uh, they, uh, weep all over me saying, give us meat that we uh, may eat. Wow. That's pretty good. Give us meat that we may eat. That's got a little cadence to it. Jesse Jackson would probably like that on the thing. Give us meat that we may eat. Now they get the, all the cliches and get the things down on, on stuff. And he said, I am not able to bear all these people. Now here's his problem, the next word, alone. God, I need some help because the burden is too heavy for me. He said, this is, this is just too much. I can't do it anymore. And he just informs the Lord of it. And then notice in verse 15, if you treat me like this, if you're not going to alleviate the situation, please kill me here and now. Wow. Wow. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands for how many of you in your service to the Lord that involves leading people have ever felt this, but this is not an unusual thing. I think about Elijah. Think of the strength of Elijah in the Old Testament and all. He looked at how God was doing things and the ineffectiveness of his ministry, at least outwardly and all. And he said to God, just kill me. Just get me, get me out of here. Take me. If you're not going to do you know, more than this and, and turn things around and use my life in the way that I think it should be used, then just kill me. And, and so here he is, he looks and says, if you're going to treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I find favor in your sight, if you love me at all, God, <laughs> then do not let me see my wretchedness. Just, just kill me. Now, he's a child of God. He's a good Jew. And, and no child of God, Old Testament, New Testament, could commit suicide. So his one option is, is God, would you just take me out and, and kill me in, in all of this? Now, praise the Lord for prayers that the Lord disregards that we lift up. You ever lifted a, a prayer up to God and then kind of have a mood change about 24 hours later and you say, forget that one yesterday, Lord, on, on things, I'm doing a little better today. And uh, the nice thing about it is that the Lord, uh, He does. He, he'll, he'll disregard our, our foolish prayers. He doesn't not make an excuse here on, on, uh, on things. And so we can add that to a classification of a prayer that God is graciously going to uh, ignore in large uh, degree. Certainly His specific request that, that He would be killed. But one of the things when you look at Moses here, and, and I think it's good to understand this as uh, God's people related to um, leaders and and what I'm about to say right now um, is is not self-serving. I'm not saying now. Listen, you guys need to all send me a card tomorrow. I, I am I consider myself one of the most affirmed people in the whole world. This is a wonderful, wonderful church to pastor. So I'm not trying to get you to do anything. But the fact of the matter is, is that this kind of thing kills leaders. And the problem is also is it kills the best leaders. It kills the leaders who really care about making a difference for God, really care about being used by God, and they get God's vision. Carnality, and to be carnal is a Christian who is dominated by the flesh. That's a carnal Christian. 
They're on their way to heaven. They're going to get in there because God is gracious and all. But they are never in their whole Christian life dominated by the Holy Spirit. They're dominated by their flesh and their fleshly uh, appetites. And this is a huge discouragement to leaders uh, like Moses. It just kills them. It just makes them honestly, makes them pray to God, would you either get me out of this or kill me? And if you don't think that's a real prayer of pastors in those kind of situations, then you don't understand pastors. This is a real deal that happens in people's lives. Now, this is one of the reasons, you know, the last um, few years, last 15 years, you've had the whole, you know, seeker movement, seeker-sensitive movement in, in professing Christianity, and it's like, the blob that swallowed Cleveland, it's, it's gobbled up evangelical Christianity, not only in the United States, but in, in the entire, um, uh, entire world. And it was interesting to see even, I don't know how many of you realize it, but Bill Hybels, who was kind of the godfather of, from Willow Creek, um, uh, went on in front of a, a most recent conference and declared to the entire fellowship of those churches that they've they made a mistake in what they'd done and that their particular method and system was drawing people it was attracting people into uh, into the church but it was not producing mature christians that the mature t- christians that uh, were in willow creek church were mature either on the basis of their own self-study of the scriptures or on the basis of some other church had done that work for them and then they had brought that into Willow Creek. And you've got to give that guy, I'll tell you, he has my respect on this level, he has my respect in that he was willing to stand up before the whole world and say, we've been wrong on this. This, what we are doing here, does not produce mature saints. The problem is, is that he then proceeded to explain what they would be doing next in order to produce mature saints, and it was basically another program, even more man-centered and more time-consuming and time-intensive, uh, a new program to replace a program, to replace things that only the Holy Spirit can really do through his word in, in God's people. But this thing has been heartbreaking for me for 15 years to watch one church after another, after another, after another, after another get gobbled up and into this whole uh, system. And the one, one of the things that really, many things, but one of the things that kept me away from it was this whole issue in the Old Testament related to the mixed multitude. And, and you, you have the attempt by churches to grow their churches by drawing in a mixed multitude or drawing in carnal Christians or carnal people who are completely dominated by them, their flesh, dominated by I, me, my, what's in it for me. If it doesn't work out for me and I have to give more than I get, then I'm going to leave and all that dynamic within a church. That kind of, of thing goes on and where you are then forced as a leader to cater to this pettiness, cater to this selfishness and, and, and carnality and all. Had no appeal to me at all. I said, I'm not interested in anything that attracts that kind of person. I can't think of anything more miserable in all of the world to be engaged in in terms of life than to be playing church 
and babysitting a bunch of carnal people who have no interest in God. As I would go back to working for the phone company or anything just about that anyone else would offer me to do. It is a miserable thing for leaders. And so this is exactly what is, is happening here. Now notice in verse 16 that the Lord said uh, to Moses, uh, it's interesting how God kind of filters Moses' prayer. He disregards 90% of it. But he does recognize that Moses um, made one legitimate request in his prayer, and that is he needs some help. And so God, he knows how to take the good out of that. And so now he, he is going to respond to Moses' prayer uh, for, for help here. And so the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the uh, elders of the people and, of, and officers over them. In other words, men of good reputation. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that uh, they may stand there with you. And then I will come down and talk with you there and I will take the uh, take of the spirit that is upon you and I will put the same spirit upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself and then there's that word alone you're right you need some help and so God now uh, offers to bring help now when he he adds these 70 elders to help Moses and they, he anoints them with, with the Holy Spirit, just as he anointed Moses with the Holy Spirit. This isn't to say that these 70 became equal to Moses in terms of authority. It means that they were kind of um, personal assistants to Moses to help him carry the weight of accomplishing God's will uh, among, among the nation. It's interesting when we get into the New Testament and we read about the Sanhedrin and Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and uh, the Sanhedrin was a, a, a member, a 70 uh, uh, member council of men, the highest uh, in terms of authority, religious men in Judaism plus the high priest so they technically numbered 70 and the reason when the Jews put the Sanhedrin together they numbered it 70 was from this particular event they figured there must be some significance to it because God called 70 at this time now that may not mean anything to you uh, unless you get on double jeopardy and that's the question and then you'll know and I want half your earnings then you shall say to the people so he speaks to Moses, now this is what you're to say to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord. I've heard everything you've said, ladies and gentlemen, Ooh. saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us when we were in Egypt, and therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. So you want meat? I got meat. I'll give you meat. And uh, you'll eat it until it comes out of your nostrils. Now the idea is probably that they would just stuff themselves with the meat when God provided until there wasn't any room anymore, you know. Or it could mean when God hit them with a plague as a result of, of, of their carnality and all, that it, it produced a vomiting and, it, you know, 
So meat coming out of the nose, you, you can picture it. So, uh, it, you know, it's going to become loathsome to you. This is going to make, you're going to have it, but it's going to make you sick on, on things. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you. This is how the Lord took it. And have wept uh, before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Ah, it's not about meat. The complainers always say it's about one thing. But the problem is always bigger and it's always deeper. This was not about meat. This was about going back to Egypt. And that's what God knew about their hearts. These folks are ready to rebel against the Lord and Moses, pack up their gear and go back to Egypt. That's a real serious situation. That's the situation God is dealing with here. And he's going to deal with it with tremendous force to remove the influence of this kind of person from among his people. And Moses said, the people who, who I am among are 600,000 men on foot, yet you've said, I'll give them meat and they, that they may eat for a whole month. So he's staggering at the promises of God. Intellectually, it just, he says, how in the world are we going to do that? Shall flocks and herds be uh, uh, slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And so here Moses doubts God's ability here on, on doing this. And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm become shortened? In the Old Testament, the arm speaks of power. The right arm speaks about the highest power. So it speaks about power. God says, do I not have enough power to do what I say I'm going to do? And of course he does. This is kind of sad because, again, Moses is confronted with like the impossibility of what God is promising here. And he does what we, I'll say, I am so often prone to do when, when God does something like this. I forget my history with God. He, again, these people have been delivered from Egypt with incredible plagues. Again, the Red Sea's been parted. There have been so many miracles, any one of which, if God could do that, he could feed these people for a month. So Moses, he staggers at the promises of God, and he starts to think of how we're going to work it out in my own strength, because he forgets his history with God. Never forget your history uh, with, with God. He said, now you shall see whether what I, uh, what I say will happen to you or not. And so Moses went out and he told the people the words of the Lord, and they gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people, and they placed them around the tabernacle. And just as God had said, and the Lord came down in a cloud and he spoke to him and he took the spirit that was upon Moses and he placed that same Holy Spirit upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them, talking about a baptism of the Holy Spirit upon there, that they prophesied. So the Holy Spirit induced utterance here on things, although they never did again. So the Holy Spirit comes upon them as an Evidence of this Holy Spirit coming upon them, they began to prophesy evidence that they'd been filled with the Spirit. But two men had remained in the camp. We don't know why. Sixty-eight of them went out to the, the tabernacle as God had instructed two of them. They missed the bus or something, some situation. God doesn't fault them for it. There's no, they weren't, didn't oversleep or anything like that. And I'm not accusing any of you that didn't get to service on time this morning of, uh, with a time change of, of anything. But they, they remained in the camp, and the one of them, name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. 
and the Spirit rested on them back in the camp, and they were among those who uh, those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, and, and yet the Spirit came upon them, and they prophesied in the camp. So here they, the Spirit comes upon them, begin to prophesy in the camp. And a young man, he hears it. Wait a second, you guys are supposed to be at the tabernacle. He's concerned about it. He told Moses, uh, Iran told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And, and Joshua, the son of Nun, Joshua now, the book of Joshua is named after him. He's going to follow Moses as the leader of Israel. But he has a relationship with Moses at this, at this point in, in time. Uh, he's, he stands by the doorway of the tabernacle whenever Moses goes in and out of the tabernacle. So there, uh, Moses is his mentor in, in life. And so Joshua... The son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered, and he counsels Moses, and he said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Now, what, what uh, Joshua uh, looks at this, and he feels like this is a really bad time for shared authority. I mean, you got, you, there's a rebellion going on in the camp. These people are whining for food. You've got a group wanting to go back to Egypt. Everything's in, a, in kind of a, a mess and everything. Now you've got these two people who are off in the camp, and kind of their, it looks like their own thing and, and all. And, and it looked like uh, if, uh, if, if Moses didn't reel the situation, rein it in a little bit, it would look like he's losing control of the camp everywhere. So it's like, take take strong control of this and, and uh, uh, you know, don't give any kind of authority to, uh, to uh, me, Dad, and, and El Dad. So he's, he's threatened by, by the whole thing. And his loyalty is very commendable, but he, he's, he's very, very wrong here for one, one great reason. God anointed him. You can't fight God's anointing. You can't fight God's calling on a person's life. God called him. He anointed him. He caused him to prophesy. You can't fight that because you're jealous or threatened by their authority. And that's kind of what's going on here. So he probably thinks he's going to get a, you know, a, a friend in Moses here. Moses is going to say, that's right. Boy, this is a dangerous time to be spreading authority now. I don't know who to trust on things. And it looks like the whole camp's unraveling here. Time to tighten things up and all. And Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Are you, do you think I'm concerned about spreading some authority around in this camp? He said, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. He said, I wish they all were filled with the spirit. I wish they all prophesied is an evidence of that. A spirit-filled congregation is much easier to lead than a mixed multitude-influenced congregation. We need to continue as a fellowship. Every church needs to to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, to continue to believe in and to ask for the baptism with the Holy Spirit is God's people. That's what holds us all together, is the Spirit of God at, at work here. So he looks and says, listen, don't be uh, threatened for me. I wish all of God's people were baptized in the Holy Spirit or full of the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing is he has no idea. It's going to be a while before that gets fulfilled, but it does get fulfilled, doesn't it? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon what constituted the totality of the body of Christ at that time, and, and here is Moses' prayer answered. That's the congregation I want to lead where everyone is, is spirit-filled. 
And so this is what I, I would desire. Don't think I'm threatened by spirit-filled people. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and uh, it brought quail from the sea. And uh, so this is a common thing uh, in the spring. The quail make their way across the Sinai Peninsula. It's unusual for them to go as far as where the children of Israel were encamped. So God had to use a wind now to, to get them uh, up close to the camp of Israel. So he, they got this, this, the quail making their way. They're fluttering along. He uses a wind to move them toward the children of Israel. And, uh, and there they are uh, fluttering about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side all around the camp. 20 miles in all directions. Quail. You want meat? Here it comes. And then, as if it couldn't get better, they were flying about two cubits above the surface of the ground. Three feet above the ground. A cubit is 18 inches. See, all you had to do just grab anything you wanted. You could just start knocking them out of, out of the flying into the ground. God made it real easy for them. And the people stayed up. This is, this is the strength of their lust for flesh. The people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, knocking these quails down to the ground, <laughs> and gathering the quail, and he who gathered least gathered ten homers. Now this isn't a Barry Bonds thing, this is a, a measurement uh, here on, on things. Uh, but to give you an idea of, of the, their, their hunger for, you know, we want meat, we want meat, we want meat, and the, they're all built up into this frenzy, they stay, they stay awake two days and a night getting it, and the, one, the, the men and women who gathered the least amount of quail, they gathered ten homers. A, a homer is a little over five bushels, a little over six bushels, actually. So every single person has gathered in that time over 65 bushels of quail. Come on! But that tells you that, that just the frenzy that they're in to get... Uh, get meat. I mean, this is a picture of flesh cannot be satisfied. So they say, all right, well, you know, this, we could get about, you know, uh, five or six of them, roast them real nice. And, no, they're getting bushels uh, of them. And then they spread them out for themselves all around the camp uh, because they're going to try and dry them. Okay, we can't eat all of these this quick, so we'll dry them out here and be able to eat them. And while, as they, they start to eat the quail, while the meat was still between their teeth, they just took, in, you, you know that bite where he's, this is a demonstration, so, so you know, you take that bite, and this is what happened. They ripped the meat off, and it's right in their mouth now, before they can chew. Notice, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people. So they get that, and he doesn't even let them chew one time before he wipes them out. They, he's, he was going to give them what they wanted, but he wasn't going to let them enjoy it. He wasn't going to let them enjoy it. So they got that meat, they just ripped it right off. It's between their teeth before they could even chew once. The wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague so that the name of that place, um, uh, they called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava because they were there, they buried the people who yielded to craving. So he sends a plague in. You go, wow. Man, he wiped out a whole bunch of people. 
And he did. And I mean, he did it decisively, and he didn't even flinch. Because he was going to remove this influence from among his people. Because they endanger what he wants to do through his people. And God has a way of doing that. A lot of ways of removing people from something that the Lord is is in the middle of. He does, uh, today he doesn't strike them dead. Though you know something? He can. I, I, have a, I have a fear of God. I have a real fear of Him. Tremendous respect for Him. And I, I have a fear of putting Him in a place of where uh, I get between Him and what He's wanting to accomplish in this world. Because I know it, without any nothing, He could take me out. I don't want to be on the wrong side of him uh, on this thing. But he doesn't, you know, send plagues into the body of Christ and, and, and do this kind of thing in mass. But he knows how to remove and, and destroy an unhealthy influence in a church. Sometimes it works like this. And I, I know I'm, I'm out of time. So I thought it might help you to know that. Uh, I'll only be another minute here. But there are complainers in the body of Christ, and they're real. And there isn't a church in the world that's going to satisfy them. And they go from one church to the next church to the next church to the next church, and they come in to this church, and they catch me at the back door, and, Pastor, this is the greatest church we've ever been. You know, we came from down there, and before that we came from there and there. And boy, you know, they just, and I'll tell you, and that, that pass out, and then, and I'll, and then, and all, but I don't see any of that here. We're going to be here for life. I just look at my watch, I'll give you ten minutes. Now, honestly, I can honestly say, in, in my heart, I'll say, I'll give you three weeks. I'll give you three weeks. And almost always they're gone. And they leave church after church after church after church and they think that it's because they are so spiritual. And what they don't realize, what is just as likely and maybe even more likely is God keeps removing them from one church after another after another because of the poison they will bring into that church. It's something to think about. God knows how to deal with these things to protect His work through a local church and His work through His people. So He removes them. The place is named Kibroth Hatava, which means Graves of Lust. Isn't that a great name for a place? I mean, it's named after the event. All of the graves that lust put these people, God's people, into and it's something that happens today. You think about how many people, even Christians, die an untimely death in the judgment of, of God or because of the lust for sin, the lust for the things of Egypt, the things of the world, the lust of the flesh. They give that a greater priority in their life than the things of God, living for God, making a difference for God, expanding the kingdom of God in the world. And the problem is, is every single one of us are made to live full on for God and His purposes for our lives. And if we don't do that, we open the door for Egypt to come back in. 
And Egypt just starts to feed the lusts again and the lust and the lust. And the next thing we know, we're back into bondage to all the things that tried to destroy us the first time. And lust, this kind of thing, the lust for Egypt, the lust for the world, still killing so many people today. Important chapter. Very important lessons for our lives as Christians. The worship team would come forward. I just want to spend just one worship song before they do the closing worship song. Because I want us just to sit quietly through one song and just say, Lord, anything I'm supposed to respond to related to this chapter. And I don't, again, as I said before, I'm not saying, boy, there's six guys in this room that I think, I hope, I thought about them the whole time I was putting this thing together. There's none of that. You are a wonderful group of people to, to serve. I don't have to deal with these things on, any, on an individual basis a handful of times through the years. So there's no kind of attack like that. But it's so powerful and so important. I just like the Spirit to have one more chance to just fashion our hearts a little bit through one more song. Kid, would you leave?